Everybody learns differently. Everybody has a different learning style. Some people like to watch a YouTube video. Other people want the owner's manual and they want to read the directions. Some people, they just want to figure it out themselves. Those are the people that go to Home Depot four times for every DIY project. Some people want to be shown. I was going to come up with an example from my own life, but then I saw this in my Twitter feed. It's a picture of a little boy and his dad, and a little boy asks what happens if you run over a stick of butter and you can read the rest. Sometimes you just got to see it to know. And that's what Paul is doing for us in Ephesians today. He's kind of saying, let me show you what this thing looks like. So we've been talking about distinctions about following Jesus and how we should be different from the culture and how we have different values. And so now Paul's going to show us what it looks like to be different because following Jesus should cause us to be different. We should be different in the values we hold. Our marriages should look different. Our community should look different because following Jesus gives us hope and a new purpose in life and a lot more blessings from being connected to God. So Paul's going to give us some concrete examples of what the transformed community looks like. And it's basically a commentary on what we talked about last week. But one of the things that I want you to notice is that at the core of all these things is a different view of relationships. There's kind of a cultural view of relationships and a Jesus-oriented view of relationships. Our culture kind of says, you're your own. You belong to yourself. What you want and how things impact you are all you need to worry about. That's kind of the fundamental assumption of life. But the gospel offers a very different vision of relationships. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is pretty much reformed from the Presbyterian tradition, gives us this great picture. It says, I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Or in the words of scripture in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So I belong to God. I belong to others. The Holy Spirit joins me together with other people in the church. So that changes our relational view. So how do we behave relationally? If we're going to follow Jesus, it has to affect those relationships because we want to do things differently. So this is a list of what those differences look like. The scripture for today is really, really long. It's Ephesians 4.25 all the way to 5.20, and there's no way to read the whole thing. So I will leave that as homework for you, and we're just going to hit some of the highlights. So, couple points. Number one, be truthful. Verse 25 says, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. We talked about truth last week. Truth is an active verb. It's more like do truth to your neighbor so that in your relationship they know that they can trust you. So when we say neighbor, is this just the person that lives next door to us? No. It's really biblically anyone that we're in relationship with. And in fact, Jesus' message when he talks about being, it being a neighbor is just that, be a neighbor. It's not the person who lives next door to you. And we might have lost this a little bit. Last year, we lost some of our greatest neighbors and we missed them because they looked at us as something special. I mean, there was family, then there was their neighbors and we were great neighbors. And it just reminded us that being a neighbor really is a unique relationship. 
I mean, the neighbor is the person you borrow a cup of sugar from or an egg when you're one short. The neighbor is the person who takes out your trash when you're gone. The neighbor is the person that you stand in the street and talk about life with. The neighbor is the person that you have shared interests with because you live in the same community and probably care about the same things. The neighbor is the one who's seen you wander out first thing in the morning or last thing at night when you really haven't done much to put yourself together. And you can't have a neighbor relationship. You can't be a neighbor without trust. In fact, you can't have any faithful, healthy relationship without trust. Because if I think that you will lie to me, I'm not going to trust you, and I'm not going to go very deep relationally with you. And so we need to be characterized by the truth. So maybe ask, is it ever okay to lie? To which I want to say, why do you ask? Now actually, it's a good question. Lots of times, lying is just about expediency. It's just easier to tell a white lie than it is to get into the whole truth and then just excuse it because you really had to tell the lie. But truth and lying, what we're talking about here, is really about character and not just are there exceptions that we can fit in. I mean, we don't always have to tell the whole truth, for instance. That's not the same as telling a lie. And not, unless you're you know, in, in court, not everybody is necessarily entitled to the whole truth. They don't need to know everything. So you don't always have to tell everything that you know. And just because somebody asks you a question doesn't mean you have to answer it. But I don't think we should ever lie. And the reason why is because, honestly, if I can't trust you in the little things, why in the world would I trust you in the big things? So some of the little things matter. Like if we have a, a lunch date or we're going to go out after work or something like that, and you call me and you go, hey, I've got a doctor's appointment i got to cancel, and on my way home I see you out walking with somebody else, that might be expedient for you. It will make me not trust you again. I don't think we should ever lie. Next, don't be angry. Verse 26 says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Anger is kind of a funny thing, but it's really more of a dangerous thing. I mean, how many times have you said and done something because you were angry, and later on when you cool down, you regretted saying or doing that thing, and you either had to do some relational repair or you lost the relationship? If you're anything like me, that's probably happened a lot. So maybe the easiest thing is don't get angry. And if you have anger issues and you know who you are, maybe you need to figure out how to deal with your anger. Talk to somebody, get some counseling, find out other tools so that you're not angry. I, I think the gist of the verse is more, if you get angry, don't sin. And it's hard not to sin when you're angry, so don't get angry. I think that's really the gist of it. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite theologians, one of my seminary professors, uh, one time was talking about this verse, and he said, Jesus is the only one that we can trust with being angry and not sinning. So let's leave anger with him. And I think it's a pretty good piece of advice. And if you think, I can't not get angry, then perhaps that's something you need to work on again. And then aren't there some things that are worth being angry about? I don't know. 
if you have to get mad about something before you're willing to do something about an injustice, that might be an indictment about just how much you care normally. I mean, think about it. Then maybe let's think about this. Let's leave the great issues of injustice aside for a second. On a regular day, what do you get mad about? What did Jesus get mad about? Are they the same things? And do you know what made Jesus mad? So I think here's the real emphasis. Don't let your anger control you to the point that it causes you to sin or hurt yourself or other people or damage your relationships. And we're back to relationships. The next is almost a corollary. Don't hold grudges. Verse 26, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Deal with the problem as soon as possible because anger becomes bitterness and molehills become mountains in time. And we can move really quickly from they did something that made me mad to they are a terrible person. That can happen really fast. And so we have to take our grudges, we have to take nursing our anger into bitterness and replace that with reconciliation. Because if we let long-term bitterness develop, it will kill the relationship. And a relationship like a group of people, whatever your group is, but in our context, the church, it will destroy the church. I don't have to worry too much about this because 20 minutes later, I generally can't remember why I was mad in the first place. I hold a terrible grudge. Next, keep spiritual stuff in mind. I think that's the point of verse 27 where it says, do not give the devil a foothold. In Ephesians, Paul is constantly backing, uh, going bounce, bouncing back and forth between spiritual stuff and physical stuff, between the micro in me and the macro. And I think this is one of those things that we have to remember that spiritual stuff is going on all of the time. And if we choose to be angry, and if we choose to let the anger develop into bitterness, if we hold grudges, it's going to break the relationships the Holy Spirit is trying to develop, to use for God's purposes, to build us up and to be used for God's purposes around the world. And so in a, in a way, every time that happens, it gives the devil a foothold because broken relationships are more what he's looking for. Uh, break, broken relationships gives the powers of darkness and evil a toehold to invade and destroy our communities. I mean, I think it helps to think sometimes of Every church is really a beachhead in a war. We're either taking ground for the kingdom of God or we're losing ground to the forces of evil. And I think that every church that has been characterized by anger and bitterness over the past several years has given Satan an amazing opportunity to neutralize their effectiveness for reaching people. So maybe we could even ask, do my actions and my reactions make it more possible for the Holy Spirit or for Satan to work. Next, don't take what isn't yours. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. This is an amazing verse because stealing is bad. We know that. If, if you have ever had anything stolen from you, it's awful. It's irritating, it costs money. Um, and it's just bad. But this goes beyond stealing to what transformation looks like. 
So stealing is taking something that doesn't belong to you. It's about not caring about other people and how it affects them if you take things. Like for instance, we all pay more because the cost of shoplifting is figured into the price of what we pay. Shoplifting costs us all something. Stealing affects all of us. Sometimes if something is stolen, it's not the monetary value as much as it is the hassle. Thieves can't be trusted. It's a breakdown of the community. And so we're back to relationships again. You can't steal from people and have a relationship with them. You have to remember that your actions affect other people. And so I like it. So the, the thief is supposed to go to working and giving back. In the, the words of one commentator, the thief is to become the philanthropist. I love that because thieving is to steal and to destroy other people. The root of the word philanthropist is for the love of people. And so there's this great change in motivation. There's this great change in behavior. We're not just taking what doesn't belong to us, whether we're a petty thief or a robber baron, but instead we're working so we have something to share. We're working so that we can give. And one of the most fun things that I get to do in my line of work is I watch people learn the joy of giving. I watch people learn that whatever their budget is, if they give and help other people, it is just such an amazing feeling to see how you can change people's life. The thief should become the philanthropist. That's characteristic of the kingdom of God. Next, be an encourager. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That word unwholesome or unpure or something like that, the, the root word there is rotten. Rotten in the sense of spoiled meat, which is really a, a very effective word picture. I mean, when you talk to other people, are you literally just handing them something spoiled? Something that is going to be toxic? Something that's going to be poisonous? I mean, if it's rotten, it doesn't smell good, and it isn't good for you, and it won't leave anyone feeling good. We can cause that in other people by the way we talk to them. Instead of bringing rotten, poisonous things to people, build them up. In later on in that verse, it says, actually, give them grace. Extend to them the type of graciousness that has been extended to you. So, spoiled meat, or giving grace, which would you choose? I think I can figure that out. But that might not be what we first think of when we think of unwholesome talk. Maybe we're thinking about swearing or maybe we're talking about being mean. I think the biggest problem with unwholesome un, uh, talk is probably not swearing or being mean, it's probably complaining. It's probably being negative because complaining begets complaining and negativity begets negativity. And not only does it poison the atmosphere around us, but as we're learning, it poisons our brains too. Because the more we're negative, the more we complain, the more we're offering, offering people spoiled things, the more it changes our brain, and all of a sudden actions become habits, and habits become character. And then this interesting thing, those things that we do if we're offering not building people, if we're offering rotten things to people, they don't just damage relationships, they hurt God. They hurt the cause of God. It grieves the Holy Spirit when we do those things. 
Next, follow the right example. We're all following an example. Follow the right one. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There are lots of examples out there of vindictive and mean people. There are lots of examples of people who hold grudges, people who will destroy you if you cross them. There are lots of examples of people who ultimately don't care whether you live or die. Don't use them as an example of how to live your life. Our example is Jesus and the way that he treats us, the way that he treats everyone. So no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how unfair you have been treated, you can always be kind. You can always be gracious. You don't have to hate in response to what's been done to you. You don't need to wish evil on other people. You can actually wish them good. And that wishing good instead of evil, that kind of leads to forgiveness, which is another one of the points Paul is making. And forgiveness is really misunderstood by most of us. So a couple of words about forgiveness. First of all, forgiveness is not excusing. Excusing is what you do when it's not a big deal. If you're sitting, you know, watching a movie, or you're sitting in church and somebody wants to step over you and they step on your foot instead of the floor you, and they say, excuse me, that's an excusable offense. They didn't go out of their way to hurt you. They didn't do damage to your person. It's just one of those things. Forgiveness is not that. Forgiveness isn't just saying it's okay. That's not forgiveness. That's excusing. Forgiveness is what you need to do when it's not okay. So forgiveness is not excusing. Forgiveness is an exercise from a position of strength. Because when you forgive, it gives you the opportunity to say, you did me wrong, and I could require something back from you. I could be mad at you, but I'm going to forgive you instead. Forgiveness is not excusing. Forgiveness is not being a carpet. It's coming from a position of strength. Forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. Forgiving is often a process. And I think we get confused about that time. Okay, you were wrong. I choose to forgive you instead of being angry or holding a grudge. But I still have these feelings of hurt or anger or betrayal. And that's perfectly normal because forgiving is not the same as forgetting. Forgiving most often is a process particularly if you have to forgive something huge like a betrayal. That's not going to happen overnight. But what you can do is little by little, day by day, you can grow into the forgiveness, into the forgetting. And how can you tell if you've actually forgiven someone? You can tell that you've forgiven someone when you can begin to wish them well. That's one of the best signs of knowing that you've actually forgiven the person. And so what we're looking for is progress in that direction, moving towards the day when you can wish that person well. Forgiveness is not the same as trusting. Trust can only be built up over time. I can forgive you for what you did to me, but that doesn't mean I'm going to trust you again, maybe for a very long time, because trust can only be built up over time.
Can we forgive someone who hasn't asked for it? Yeah. In fact, we need to do it for our own sake. Sometimes the person will never come back. Sometimes the person is dead. Sometimes the person doesn't even know it. And we need to forgive so that we can set ourselves free from that. Then Paul sort of changes gears and goes a different direction. And basically, I can either spend a long time talking about this or very little, and I'm going to go with very little. Don't reflect the culture's values on sexuality. Verse 3, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So when it comes to sexuality, there is a biblical code. And it's built on care and respect. It's built on keeping the promises that you make to other people, particularly people that you are in an intimate relationship with. It's built on valuing other people. It's built on treating everyone like they bear the image of God rather than that they're just an object that's there for your temporary pleasure or convenience. That's what the Christian sexual ethic is based on, and we'll talk much more about that some other time. Next, be discerning. And this might really be the pivotal part of the entire passage. Know what God's will is. That's what it means to be discerning. Know what the right thing is to do in God's eyes. Verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The days are evil. We're back to that, that spiritual fight again. The deck is stacked against us. We look at things differently. We have different values. We can very easily be led down paths that won't lead us to life, that will only lead us to heartache and or death. And so we need to remember that. And we need to discern what's good and what's right and just and holy and pure and all of those things. So how do we discern those things? How do we figure out what God's will is? How do we figure out what's right for us to do? Well, two things to not do. First is, don't trust your intuition. Not a good guide. And secondly, never trust your feelings about what the right thing is to do because your feelings can be swayed in so many different ways, including by whether or not you ate an adequate breakfast that morning. So not good to base a major life decision on how you feel about things. You need something, you need to be a little bit more data-driven than that. So number one, what does the Bible say? There is just this handbook of how to do things that will not cause you harm or that will not damage you if you read the Bible. So what does the scripture say about it? And if you're honest and you're like, okay, there is this thing, I have no idea what the Bible says, I'm okay with that. I would rather that you admit that and then find out than make something up as you go along. I mean, in today's day, just Google, you know, what does the Bible say about this? And you'll get a whole list of that. Or talk to your friendly neighborhood pastor who might be theologically trained and could also help with that. But begin with, what does the Bible say? We are people of the book. So start there. The next is, what do people that I trust to give me godly advice say? 
So put it out there to people that you trust to give you wise counsel. Heavy emphasis on wise. Everybody has an opinion. Not everybody's opinion should be given the same weight. Who do you know that's wise? Who do you know that's godly? Who can you say, I'm thinking about this thing. I have looked at the scriptures. This seems to be what the Bible says. This is what I want to do. What do you think? Look for wise counsel. That's one of the reasons why we're doing 321 again this year is because we all want to have people who will give us wise counsel, who are speaking truth into our lives to help us make good decisions. So the flip side of that, of course, is that if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I've got this major life thing I'm thinking about. What do you think? It's incumbent upon you then to provide the wise counsel. So you might need to think about it. You might need to pray about it. You might need to look at the Bible about it. You might need to talk to your friendly neighborhood pastor about that. But just make sure that you're giving really good advice if somebody asks you. And then pray. Ask God for wisdom. Prayer is a bit subjective, so I put it at the, the last, because oftentimes what prayer gives us is a sense of peace or maybe a check in our spirit. But we have to add other things to our prayers, like what did the Bible say? What did people that I trust say? We have to add those things to our prayers, and then we'll get a pretty good idea. If what you want to do then is not in line with what the Bible says, and it's not in line with what people you trust to give you wise advice tell you, it's probably a bad idea. And that should give you pause for thought. Next, be aware of the big picture. These are not normal times. I don't even know what normal even means. Have times ever been normal? The times tend towards evil. The times tend towards chaos. And we have to realize how important our decisions can be. Eric Fromm, great um, psychologist, in his book, The Heart of Man, which is really an exploration about evil and the human condition, had this really pithy quote. Most people fail in the art of living, not because they are inherently bad or so without will that they cannot lead a better life. They fail because they do not wake up and see when they stand at a fork in the road and have to decide. And that's what Paul keeps telling us. We are quite frequently at a fork in a road and we always have to decide which direction we're gonna go. If we're gonna go the way that leads to life or if we're gonna go the old way. Are we gonna put on the new or live in the old? Are we gonna go a way that we know will lead us to Jesus or a way that will differently? We stand at a fork all the time and we need to be aware of that. So let me ask you three questions. How can you improve your process for making good decisions? Number two, what step can you take toward forgiving someone who has hurt you? And number three, if Paul was writing to you, what area would he say you need to work on?